Welcome to Directionally Correct, a Felix podcast with Colin Scott. Today's guest, nobody. There you go. There we go. I love it. Thanks to our sponsors, Polynode. Harness the full power of organizational network analysis with Polynode. With one-click data integrations and built-in relationship-based surveys, Polynode enables people analytics practitioners to move from data to insights faster. To learn more and see why Polynode is trusted by some of the most innovative companies in the world today, book a demo at polynode.com slash directionally correct. All opinions are our own and do not reflect those of any other organization. Okay, so he's he gives them a bump for their the, the age of the restaurant, which I guess is a proxy for quality. Yeah, but, but like even yeah. if it tastes shitty, he will give them a bump for the like how old it is. It's like that makes no sense. And the second thing is he likes like little frou-frou stuff that they put on it sometimes. Like they'll put like 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 salad or something. And he's like, oh, this is so great. They're trying I'm like, no, I want a pizza. <laughs> you know? So he likes crispy, but like uh, <clears throat> kind of floppy crust, right? Well, yeah, no, he penalizes for floppy. I, I, um, I'm with him on that. Like if it were like yeah. a freaking cracker, like 100%. Yeah. I just, um, I guess you could say, I just like a more traditional like pizza. And he he's like, and the thing is, he's not consistent with it either. Like some places he penalizes <laughs> liability issues here. Yeah, like he, some places he penalizes <laughs> for being frou frou, and other places he gives him additions for being frou frou. I'm like, no, consistently pizza. Like that's what I, I'm looking for. I don't like the floppy ones either. I like the, but he he like he always talks about the undercarriage and like how like the undercarriage. I was like, I've never rated a pizza for its undercarriage I, well i mean if you're gonna go into the pizza rating business like you got to start getting pretty technical right yeah but they are fascinating and there's a lot of the it's kind of like pizza ratings but also man on the street at the same time yeah because there's a lot of like people that come by and like the owners of the restaurant know it like makes or breaks their restaurant ratings. yes so they like come out and watch and there's a lot of like funny interactions because of that it's very human. I, I've noticed what you were talking about as far as like you love Johnny's Pizza here mm -hmm. in Seattle. So I think the food in Seattle is pretty much trash like across oh, really? the board. They don't have any like like regional things that they're known for that are good. Well, you would think, OK, let, here, let, let, let me, I'll explain. But yes, you would think that they would have great like say seafood. Yeah. Or they would have, they do have good Asian food, a lot of okay. great Thai restaurants. They're known for teriyaki, this sort of thing. But what I've noticed is like traditional foods, burgers, pizzas, um, uh, like chicken fried steak or something like that. I, I think oh, that dude. people people here that they, they grew up on a certain way that the food was prepared, mm -hmm. and therefore come to like the way it's prepared here. But that doesn't necessarily mean it's good, if that makes sense. Oh like, yeah, it makes perfect sense. It's just yeah, like, like they don't use I wouldn't even, spices either. It's, there's no flavor here whatsoever. I would not even try a chicken fried steak from Seattle. Like I would just know. It well here it's a breakfast food. In Texas, it's a dinner. Right. Yeah. So well, it's always served with eggs. Yeah. Oh, oh, I never told you this. You're gonna love this. What I found it? a um a uh like a good old the country shack or a breakfast sort of brunch place. Uh, I don't know. It's like south, uh, south of downtown, but they had shrimp and grits. I was like, mm -hmm. "I've been missing me some shrimp and grits. Go get me some shrimp and grits." Ordered it up, fantastic. They bring it out, and yes, it's traditional shrimp and grits, but because it's a breakfast food here, they put scrambled eggs right on the top in the middle, 
of the shrimp and grits and put like gravy on top of it. <laughs> and it's, it's like two different dishes in one dish. And the the actual food was good, but it's like why why why'd you ruin this? You're like I made the masterpiece and I just ruined it by putting scrambled eggs right on it's top. It's like something a child would make. <laughs> Well, it's all going to the same mouth hole and the same, you know, belly eventually. So why not just put it all together? Yeah, I guess. <laughs> but yes, yes, you, you'll talk to people and be like, I, I got to get back to Seattle because I just love the way they make their food at, you know, Restaurant X. It's like, really? Because I don't Well, I always thought they were known for, a, yeah, like the seafood, like, you know, clams and oysters and all that kind of stuff. And so I'd always thought that that was like the thing. You would think so. Uh, but like, if, if we're going to get seafood around the country, I'm thinking Boston first, really. Boston is good. It's yeah. really good. Yeah. You're not wrong. I, I guess it depends. Like, so if you're talking like crabs, you're talking like Boston, if you're talking and not, not that crawfish is necessarily seafood, I guess it is <laughs> land food. Yeah. It's little bugs. Yeah. They're essentially like underwater <laughs> bugs. You're right. What's it about? Oh, sorry. What's it about Johnny's pizza though? I, don't know, I think they just the have under like a, undercarriage. Not the under. They do have a good constitution. I would call it like it's. <laughs> what it, does that even mean? It means it's like it's got a good ratio of like cheese, mm, meat, mm. sauce, and bread. Like it's oh, just yeah. got a good and it's pretty consistent. Like all throughout the pizza. Like I don't like a a pizza like in different areas. It's like different cooked layers. Like oh, I yeah. like, like I don't need any of that business. You gotta get that sweep the swamp, man. Yeah, I just remember the commercials. We actually just found a new pizza place by our, our new house that we really like, and I've been super pleased because I have found a big struggle of getting good pizza in Dallas. And so we found one. I'm like, all right, this is we're getting it like once a week now. <laughs> <laughs> you got to keep them in business, right? Once you find something good. Yeah. yeah well, I mean, sure. there's a lot of like IO or I guess you go like people analytics sort of concepts around a restaurant so the food is maybe five ten percent of the recipe of a successful business right everything else is about managing people staying on top of the books advertising you know just making sure you just deliver a consistent product all these sort of things that are not related directly to the food yeah so this is a funny thing because i've actually worked in a few restaurants and i still feel like i know very little about what it makes to make a restaurant <laughs> successful, like at all. Um, and so I just, there's clearly a formula to it. I just am unaware. <laughs> I watch a lot of Bar Rescue and apparently a lot of the oh, formula yeah. is like keeping your employees from stealing from you. <laughs> oh, that, I mean, that's probably true. There's probably a lot of leakage, you know, in, uh, in different kinds of restaurants. Oh yeah. Especially when your margins are super thin. Yeah. You know what I did the other day? I've never uh, done this before. I don't know if they have it in Seattle. Um, I tried curling for the first time. You know what curling is? Uh, ice curling? Yeah, ice curling. Uh, I, in the like 2012 Olympics, I, was, I, I made the proclamation that like I could do this and I would just put a beer on the <laughs> ice next to me and I could like at least come in third. Well, it was, it's definitely a beer drinking sport. Like that's... <laughs> This is and, amazing, sir. Like, okay, tell like they have a curling rink in Dallas. So they don't. They're um, and if you want to contribute to it, because they're trying to build one, they're raising funds <laughs> right now. Um, but um, 
a friend of mine who happens to be kind of in the people analytics space, her name's Fran. Uh, she's, uh, I guess, from the Midwest somewhere, and she's uh, kind of a transplant to Dallas. And uh, she is like one of the leaders in this local group, and they yeah. practice where the Dallas Stars uh, practice. Um, and so they the, just, uh, I Star, guess, Star Center. Yeah. It, it, so they get it like late at night and stuff. Um, and, uh, but they're trying to build a rink, but I, I, they did one of these classes to like teach you how to do it. And I figured out why I like it, uh, off the bat. I didn't realize. So golf and curling were both invented in, in Scotland and like, you know, 500 years ago or something like that. Right. And golf was the summer sport and curling was the winter sport. So it's the same people like beer drinking, idiosyncratic, very high accuracy kind of weird game that you play and but just one happens to be on ice and others on grass and i was like oh this is this is awesome so i went to the class and i liked it so much i went to one of the first nights of the league and uh man it was a lot of fun and it's hard you have to get into a full um what do they call it not squat uh lunge and you're sliding in a lunge down the ice and it is it is as difficult as that sounds to do, uh, but it is it's a lot of fun and it there's a lot of like camaraderie aspects to it yeah. too, which I thought were cool because it's a team sport. But I really enjoyed it. I want to be able to slide on like one foot the way they do. They push off with like the shoe with I guess the gripper and the one that has the slide. And yeah, just, it's like a badass move. It's no joke, man. And some of these people, they are so flexible. Like they can flexible they, in curling. Yeah, like their head, they are so flexible. Their head will be like six inches off the ice for like a good twenty yard slide. And I'm like, I don't have that kind of flexibility. I'm like, my head's probably three feet above the ice. <laughs> wait, wait, what? Why? Okay, so like they, they, I guess go off the, the, the block. It. Yeah, yeah. So you're trying to aim it, and so it's kind of like a pool player looks yeah, down yeah, yeah. the pool cue. So they get really, really low so they can look down the ice and guide it the way they're direct the direction they're wanting it to go. The sweeping would be I've figured the workout of the whole thing. You oh, yeah. mentioned that. It's straight up. <laughs> You're gonna be sweating. <laughs> yeah. The thing I really learned, because I had not spent really, really any cool, amount man. of time on ice in my life growing yeah, up yeah. in Louisiana. This is my first time. I thought I was gonna bust my butt the whole time I was out there sweeping, just mm -hmm. going down the ice. Sweeping's not hard at all. It's just a workout. Like I thought I was going to fall all the time. It's very, I, I never fell even once. It's a pretty amazing sort of concept that like you were essentially melting the ice in a certain direction for the, what would you call it, the stone? I think it's just called a stone, right? Yeah, I think it is. I think that's what it is. The puck? I don't know what that thing is called. No, it's a stone because it's, I mean, that thing's like legit heavy. It's granite, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, like what amazing concept that you can just like sort of like casually move the trajectory of this thing to be you know strategically placed well it's one thing again a lot of relationships to golf in golf they talk about break all the time on the green mm, yeah and there you don't even realize like how many imperfections are in the ice that send mm. um, the stone in different directions even without sweeping just like right? ruts ruts from <clears throat> yeah hockey hockey will rut the ice like crazy yeah, and so it, it's very challenging because you have to be aware of like where the bad patches of ice and stuff like that. It was very fascinating. I, I'm not a golf guy, but uh, I, I don't think I shared this with you, but I was invited to St. Andrews this uh, March or April. Really? So, yeah, I'm going to go to Edinburgh and up to uh, Scotland to go check it out. I don't even give a shit about golf. It's totally wasted on me. 
I'm just going to look at it and be like, yeah. that's an open field, man. There you go. Well, it is beautiful. Like, not just the been? golf course, but been? that area. Mm. Well, I mean, I've watched on TV a bunch. I mean, gotcha. Like, and I mean, it's one of the most beautiful areas in the entire world, you know? Like, the, so, I mean, that's going to be fascinating just for that reason, just being in an old, like, you know, thousands of year old town, <laughs> you know? Stuff like that. That that I hope you have a good time with it. What what's the occasion? Uh, a buddy of mine and his group. They're big golfers, and um, he's like, "Hey, we're going. Do you want to get?" Because he knows like all international travel. He's, yeah. he's not much of an international traveler. And I was like, "Hell yeah, I love Edinburgh. I will be there." Well, that's um, I may be making this up, but I'm pretty sure this is right. That's a big get. Like people have to sign up yeah. like, year, years in advance to get that, and so that's really cool that he invited you. He he broke it down for me, and like, f- forgive me if I get the details wrong, but it was something like a buddy had an in there, and then they are going for like five days, and you're entered in a lottery every day, so they expect to go at least twice, but they could go as many as like four times, some something mm-hmm. like that, but. Uh, yeah, it's, it's some sort of daily lottery. So I guess you just got to sit by the door with your clubs yeah. and just wait. My uncle's done it. He's a big golfer. And he um, he said the only thing that's unenjoyable about it is they rush you. Like they <laughs> yeah, have you I on imagine. Top watch. They're like, nope. <laughs> no, no. Like you, you hit your ball out. You're like, nope, too bad. You well, walk on to the next hole. Sorry. We're, we're not looking at the break on the green today. You're, yeah. you're moving on. Keep going. Because they're trying to get as many people through as possible. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, here, speaking of like getting people through here, I'll, I'll cover up the important bits. Check out this like ridiculous photo they did. Oh, you can't really, I don't know if it comes through. It's, it's not a, very clear, but it does look like that you're on like the moon or something. Yeah. I mean, I approved a photo and then they like put like a mask over it. So I look like the whitest. I'm, I'm going to go to Scotland. So I mean, I'll fit right in. I'll be clear. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if you have any Scotch heritage, but maybe. Oh, very much so. Like I, I, when I landed in Scotland, I looked around. I was like, "These are my fucking people." Oh my god! <laughs> like, look at everybody. They're like blonde hair, blue eyed. Like they just look. They're my height. It's like this is this is what's been going on. I just didn't yeah. know it. Well, you're you my cousin. Like <laughs> <laughs> we're probably all related. Yeah. Never mind the fact I can't understand anything that you say, even though you're speaking English. So how bad is it really? Like is it? <laughs> Is it truly that bad or is it just like the real yokel locals that are like that or something? I think that um, <laughs> I, I think that I process a lot of information while people are talking. Therefore, I miss like even just standard Americans talking. And like, let's just like try and put that with cognitive load of trying to understand somebody in another yeah. country. Yeah, it's tough. It can be tough. Okay. there's some people with like a thick accent you're like i i have no idea man no idea what you just said that's fascinating <laughs> i wonder yeah like is that do you think there's anywhere else on earth that speaks english but is more difficult to understand <sighs> yeah yeah where, <laughs> where? new orleans <laughs> new orleans <laughs> That's that's a different. Yeah. <laughs> Not wrong. Um, you're like, yeah, sure, man. Like, I guess we're both speaking English, but you're on a different planet for sure. This is just yeah. totally not the same. That's fair. I need I need mm. a Scotsman to talk to a uh, <laughs> a Cajun guy. They're 
and, and report it. Speaking different languages at that point, <laughs> like you could say, the phylogenetic tree of languages has split already. Um, Phylogenic, I love it. I love it. King King Philip came over for good sex. That's a kingdom phylum class order species. That's how you understand the oh. phylogenic order. I must not learn that. Is that was that a uh, acronym or something? Yeah, yeah. Oh, fascinating. Never heard that one. Hmm. So now you can classify anything. Cool. Do you remember what the differences are between those? Uh, well, kingdom like got like your animal kingdom. Mm-hmm. Um, no. <laughs> After that, no. It's easy. You can just say no. <laughs> I, I, I know. We can the very, bullshit our way through it. The, the very bottom end, you have uh, like all your Latin phrases, and you'll you'll get like a specific plant, and they start classifying the plants kind of like how they look, and it'll be like, uh, well, we'll say it's a uh, plant plant X, whatever mm-hmm. plant X, uh, droopy leaves, and like whatever the word for droopy leaves is in Latin. And like that's what that plant's name is now, and it's like Felis mogatis or you know whatever it is. And it's like, well, this one's got like perky leaves, so it's like same same plant, just kind of like raised leaves, and that that's how it's done. That's fascinating, huh? Anyway, hmm. like we've totally I don't even know where we've gone today. This is awesome. We're all over the place, man. Um, you got uh, you got something here, mom? Well, I was wondering. Um, we had talked about, and I don't know if you've got some ideas here, but I've only got one um, of a guest wish list. A guest right? wish list. Some folks that we probably don't, I don't even know if we could get them on the pod, but uh might be fun to have if we could ever have them. Do you have anybody you'd like to have on? Guest wish list. Um. I would like it's like different classes, right? If you start thinking about people like different classes, like one is like your IO psychs, right? So, yeah. and we we've had like Fred Oswald on, we've had a, a few other folks, and they've been absolutely fantastic. fantastic. Probably the ones I've enjoyed. Uh, the, 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 everyone's a favorite, but perhaps some yeah. are mo- most favorites. Let's put yeah. it that way. Um, so, like more of those type of guys, but I mean, I think we could also like go for like. Um, public figures like just go like what if we had like kim kardashian on (laughs) just like have her talking about her business i just don't know enough about like that i i just don't follow that stuff to ask good questions maybe you do but me neither yeah that's that's the point that's the point it would be really basic like the fans of hers would hate me (laughs) asking such basic (laughs) questions It would be great to get, uh, you know, world leaders on. I mean, are we talking like dream list or are we talking like practical could get? Well, yeah, you can, we can talk dream list. I mean, this is our podcast. We can talk about whatever we want. Um, I, like uh, from like a practical standpoint, like I think we should have more economists on. I think we, okay. we, I don't think we've ever really talked to a behavioral scientist. I don't believe. Not that I remember. Yeah, I don't think we have. Maybe. Yeah, that might not be a bad idea. I don't think we ever um, talked to a B-Sci and just just to understand the differences because they do a lot of overlap with IOs and they do a, a bit of overlap with economists, but they have a specialized field and specialized skill set that we haven't really explored. Yeah. And then, then there's like other like segments like I don't think we've ever talked to anybody about training. 
like in depth or like <laughs> that's not an accident <laughs> yeah that's fair i find that stuff pretty boring to be honest with you. <laughs> you tune tune out in the training um we, we we had someone from the government on that was fantastic yeah uh yeah so like i i think about people in like general categories yeah my um what about you yeah well, i was thinking uh one name I could probably think of some names on the fly in, in terms of those things you just mentioned, because that would be fascinating, um, is Herman Aginnis. I, mm-hmm. I've cited, I actually have an, an article that he's an author on today to talk about too, but uh, he's just like such a powerhouse researcher. <clears throat> and um, had this funny thing happened in grad school. It wasn't me, but it was somebody else in my cohort. They thought his, la- they couldn't, we had an argument, like the whole group about what, how do you pronounce his last name? And there was this group of people who literally thought his last name was pronounced Aduinus. No. And and so somebody oh, actually God. called his office on the phone just to hear his answering machine to know how to pronounce his last name. <laughs> and he picked up the phone and goes, Hi, Herman Aguinnis. And they just hung up on him because <laughs> they, they were like, they heard his last name. And so sorry, you know, 15 years ago or whatever, when Herman, if you're listening, when you got a a phone call from somebody and they Easily. hung up on you rejection letter right there man yeah i doubt that dude gets rejected very often he did comment on one of my linkedin posts once and so that was cool but um i don't know he would be awesome to have on at some point he would be awesome here check this out here maybe you can share the screen but in grad school i had a, this hermit crab and i named it hermit againis <laughs> Her, hermit oh, againis i was like pet and if you'll look like the cop like herman again is like gave a thumbs up to it where's the thumbs up i don't see it uh scroll down scroll down oh hermit again <laughs> that's funny oh it doesn't show, oh you, you don't have a uh uh twitter account so it doesn't show you like the comments i suppose but yeah he wrote uh lol which <laughs> oh just, that's awesome so he small, actually small win for a grad student you know that's a huge win, man. I love it. <laughs> so that, that's my connection to Herm, Herman Aguinnis, not Hermit. Uh, R.I.P. Hermit, though. Like he, he had a demise eventually. Yeah, I don't think Hermit crabs live that long. <laughs> not around me. <laughs> well, do you have any like any specific folks, any like Iosikes or non that you'd like to invite on? Um. See if we can get the community to rally around getting oh, him to come. Oh, I see what you're saying. Uh, I would love to talk to Amot, uh, the producer of like essentially the undergrad IO site book. I mean, talk yeah. about like, the wealth of knowledge there. Uh, yeah. He, <laughs> hey, shout out to uh, Amot. You got me through comps. At least give me the structure of my comps notes. Anyway, yeah. That's um, smart. Oh yeah, uh, and there's folks in say like the network analysis like once again i think about people in different segments because i think that they share largely the common knowledge bases yeah uh so it's like trying to get diversity of information from folks i'm trying to think anybody else for you mom well i'm thinking all the time because one of the things i also have is sort of a principle is like don't meet your heroes kind of thing and I like having people on here <laughs> that we like one of one of us or the other knows and like like we know they're like cool to talk with. Yeah. <laughs> and like I don't I it's just it's too fun to have somebody on if they like clam up, you know? And so I don't know. 
I mean, it's one of the interesting things about doing this pod that we've noticed. Like, as soon as the red light goes on, i.e., you're recording, people mm-hmm. people change, and people and it's, it's 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 a totally human reaction, totally human reaction. We struggle with it, uh, and I don't know. Perhaps we still do. Maybe it's not. I don't know. But um, or, or just people maybe different in print, or you you build them up in your mind than they actually are in real life too. Yeah. One guy um, I've been following a lot lately, and I think I've cited a few of his articles um, from LinkedIn, is Vin Vashista. Mm. He's big in the generative AI space, and I think he does some excellent work there. And obviously, we've talked about uh, Ethan Mullick before. Um, he, yeah, he would, he'd be fantastic. He would have been fantastic. Um, Once again, like if, if he were to like be fully engaging, I don't know if yeah. a guy that smart, it, it's hard to say that like they're going to be able to relate to you on a personal level. You can even say if he was going to show up, you know, like, <laughs> I don't know. It's like I, I booked, um, uh, I don't know who's, a, I booked Nancy Pelosi, but she just keeps not showing up to the pod. I don't know why I picked that name. That was like a big, big public figure. I, I booked Trump too. Why not? Yeah. Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm not crazy about waiting into like any of that stuff, to be honest. I definitely don't want to do any political stuff. Like yeah. it doesn't occupy my mind or didn't, doesn't even fascinate me. Well, it's just not, it's not interesting and scientific. Like, like I, I think like we can talk about like curling and, you know, like funds, <laughs> like, you know, going to Scotland, like that's well, like yeah, fun, yeah. interesting stuff. And then we can talk about like scientific stuff, but like, I don't know when you get outside of that, it's like, ah, I don't know. I don't, I don't feel this need to like unnecessarily divide us. I, I would love to talk to like a big time uh, musician because we talked about this like some time ago that essentially when you're a band, mm-hmm. you, you, you make a product and hopefully yeah. people enjoy that product. And then you take that product on the road. Like yeah. we, we can't just play the same club every night. We got to go to a club in Dallas. Now we got to go to Austin. Now we got to go yeah. to Edinburgh, wherever. And you, you become a business, like you, you booking shows and like, you got to promote it. And like, there's di- people dynamics in the band and like everything just becomes like a thing. So, I mean, like, once again, it's like sort of like a people management space at this point. I think, I, I think that's a really good suggestion to one of the things I would love, especially if a person was really in tune with it. Cause some people aren't in tune with it as much as others, but if they could really communicate it effectively, you talking about the drummer. Like, no, like, <laughs> like somebody who's really in tune with the creative process. Yeah. Right. Like there's really in touch with how do you make, take something like take nothing, you know, an empty sheet of paper and leave with like a well-crafted song that people like. That's so multifaceted. If somebody's really in touch with that, it would be really fun to talk about. Um, I, I get caught up in these like sort of like U2 spirals and like this comes up every so often. Like I like, hear like Billy Corrigan talk or mm-hmm. um, uh, the surviving men- members of like Nirvana. And it's it's really wild. Like some songs, I forget names off the top of my head, but it's like some songs, I was working on this for five years, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. and it took forever. Others are like, we wrote this entire thing in 14 minutes and it's a yeah. mega hit and it's amazing. Yeah. Uh, like uh, Chris Martin from uh, Coldplay. He okay. talked about writing yellow in like a matter of like 10 minutes. Really? And that was like their breakthrough hit. And that's kind of a, like, that's not a simple song, you know? Like I would think if it took like 10 minutes to write, it would be like one of these like really catchy play the same, you know, 
three. Oh, chord. You, you got you got a hook. You yeah, verse, chorus, verse. Yeah, wow. yeah, yeah. And it, it's actually not like, and so that's that's fascinating. But yeah, like understanding the creative process, like I, I try and do that. I, I read a lot of innovation work. I read mm -hmm. uh, a lot about creativity, and uh, I think the one key takeaway is diversity of information and time to uh, drill down yourself. So like you oscillate between these periods of yeah. understanding all the different possibilities that are out there and then taking time to refine it yourself. That seems to be the common thread. Otherwise, there's no real magic to the sauce, you know? Well, it's very, because um, I feel like this, the podcast versus like, because I write a lot of articles too. Yeah. Um, it's a very different part of my brain that I'm using for mm. that versus this. Um, and it, when, it, when it comes to like writing, it's very, I don't know. I, I always say it's like, I, I'm like kind of manic almost. <laughs> like, like oh, we, you, you, you can't have, get the words out fast enough sort of deal. Yeah. It's like you have this spark of inspiration. Yeah. And it's like this rush to get all the goodness out before the spark goes away. Like right. God came down and touched you. You got you <laughs> yeah. got to put it on paper somehow. Yeah, it's like uh, I. It wasn't until I started writing. I heard I can't remember where I heard this, but somebody was saying like the muses are real, right? And what they meant by is like you have no control <laughs> over when like yeah, inspiration absolutely. comes. And it wasn't. I was like, ah, that's baloney. And I started writing, and I realized that is totally real. <laughs> it was like because the best ideas seem like they come out of nowhere, and it's like not even your own. I, I write a lot for work and like I have I understand what you mean especially like on a small scale like I'm trying to write a paragraph mm -hmm. and like in my head like the perfect sentence comes out and like you gotta like frantically like get that sentence out before your other your mind's polluted man by other yeah. thoughts it's like a so there's like a competition in your mind <laughs> for attention <laughs> it's like you gotta keep it focused on this little thing for just long enough before your attention <laughs> goes somewhere else uh speaking of switching attention i pulled down this thing uh myth busting in people analytics you want to do some of this yeah this, this, is a, this is a shocker for cole cole hasn't heard any of this he never even heard uh i didn't talk to him about this <laughs> uh, some people would say i never discussed this with cole before the show that's a better way to say that yeah that's fine i'm curious if i'll agree with whether they're myths or not yeah we can get through as many as we care to here yeah. uh myth one uh, millennials are job hoppers. So contrary to popular belief, a study by the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics revealed that millennials' job tenure is not significantly lower than that of Gen X at the same ages. Factors like yeah. industry, role, economic conditions play more of a significant role. Well, it, it makes perfect logical sense that earlier in your career, there's a lot less latency time between roles. And as you progress in your career, there's much more latency between when one role exists and another role exists. And so whether it be job hopping between jobs like in a company or job hopping between companies, there's just a lot more Plinko going on mm. in the very beginning, um, whereas there's a lot less of that later on. So it makes perfect sense. It, it does make sense if you, if you phrase it, frame it that way. Like early mm -hmm. on, maybe you have a job, maybe you have a career. Like if you have a career, mm -hmm. you're probably in a, for the longer period of time. Um, plus in your 20s, like your life is just way more turbulent. Like you're going to school or like you get out of school and like 
perhaps you find a mate and that mate goes to school and like you move, you know, it's like yeah. a lot going on in your twenties. When I've heard a lot, like, uh, Aaron Krause and, uh, Victoria, one of the girls from our grad school, they had like this running psyop presentation they would do every year on mm -hmm. it's not generations, it's life stages. And they showed all the research behind it. So I've, I've definitely heard this before. It is. I, I understand why this happens though. Like I remember going back to grad school after being in the workforce for several years and just like looking at these, uh, students, like they're aliens, like just not understanding the motivation that like, Oh, you, you haven't done anything, but you need to prove it. Right. And they're plus you're just like at a different sort of like stage where it's like full of like motivations, et cetera, to, you know, Drive. The world is so much more defined back then. Is what I realized. It's like they're, they're more defined. Yeah, it's it's weirdly more and less defined. And what I mean by that is, when you're in graduate school, there's absolutely a lot of boundaries between around what you're learning. Now you don't know any of it yet, and so you have a lot of like it's undefined in the sense you have a lot you need to learn. But once you get to those kind of edges of what you need to learn, it's like, all right, I'm good. I got this box checked. Right. I know my team's research. I know my personnel research. I know my whatever. <laughs> and, but like when you get outside of graduate school, it's like, there are no more boundaries. <laughs> it's just like, well, you just need to know everything. And so it's very, you know, I like one of like, here's a simple example. How many people leave like Iowa site graduate schools and have never used Excel? Now we can rant and rave about how Excel is terrible, but most companies are going to expect you to have a basic competence in Excel, but that wasn't a part that wasn't within the boundaries of what you really needed to know to graduate. And so a lot of people are like, God, I had to learn how to send an email using Microsoft office and how to use Excel just to get a job. There ought to be like a practical grad student class. Like here's how to structure an email. Like, no, you don't need 10 paragraphs. If you're going to send it to somebody, just a simple line is fine. I, I don't know what like the 10 categories would be, but it, you could be fairly simple and give people a basic foundation to actually work in the workforce. Yep. Okay. Uh, happy employees are always more productive or actually just productive in general. Uh, while employees happiness is important, it doesn't always translate directly to productivity. A study published in a journal of vocational behavior found that job engagement uh is more accurate predictor of employee productivity than general satisfaction yeah i feel like that was um like paul sackett was one of those big kind of phase shifts yeah. in our psychology i remember the switch from job satisfaction to engagement was one of those prior mm -hmm. phase shifts that i feel like where all the research up until one point was on satisfaction then like all of a sudden overnight it all switched to engagement so that's definitely kind of one of those things that changed over time it's you can just step back and just look at the world and just like see someone that is like laser focused on their job or like pretty, like look at like a football player that's like freaking fire in their eye this sort of thing is like they are not happy right now but they're about to tear <laughs> shit up <laughs> yeah that's fair uh another myth remote workers are less engaged data from gallup shows that remote workers can be more engaged than their in-office counterparts the key is amount of remote work uh those that with hybrid schedule uh you know coming in part-time etc have higher levels of engagement than those who are fully remote or always in the office it's almost like uh <laughs> having autonomy and choice is a <laughs> factor yeah, it is until like somebody doesn't want autonomy, but yeah. <laughs> um, 
this is one of those things where oh so someone higher up doesn't want people to have autonomy no 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 like uh i'm just thinking there's been so much debate about the whole remote work over the last you know two years or so yeah that I just, I can't almost not talk about this in multivariate terms. Like anybody says, well, remote work makes you less engaged or more engaged. I'm like, it's a multivariate thing, please. Like it's more than just that. There, there is an element of like, well, male workers are like this. Women workers yeah. are like that. It's like, well, people. Have I'm kind of tired of these like simplifications that we make as society. Um, it's just, it's, it's boring, you know? I don't know. I will say it is it's 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 good for people to come into the office at least sometimes. Like, yeah, meet, meet meet a person, put put on some pants, take a shower, maybe. <laughs> maybe like I hey, I get it. I love working on my bed. Like if I'm in, I don't even have a desk at the house, which is why I come in the office. Like I I sit on my bed and I work. It's terrible sleep hygiene, all, all the bad things. But well, that's the thing good. is like you and yourself are sort of a multivariate equation. Oh where, yeah, like you go into the office, but also so that you could you like from the people who are like really pro remote working, they would say, well, that's a negative, right? But then you have what I would call really good boundaries of work life balance because you you know you're not working in your laptop in your bed all day, and so you like when you leave the office, you have those boundaries, which would be like a plus in the plus column. But it's like it's always multivariate, you know. Yeah, I, I like that nuanced uh, angle that you're playing there. Yeah, I, I understand the people that got really accustomed to work from home, but mm -hmm. a lot of them are like intransigent and just essentially say like, look at this study. It says that if you work from home, you're better off. It's like, uh, I mean, and, and it, it gets to be. Yeah, that's I think that's where my frustration is. It's like, yeah, people who are intransigent in the face of new information. Yeah. Right? Like, it's totally fine to advocate for something and say, like, this is my preference. It's like, okay, it's fine. It's your preference. But it might not be everybody's preference. Hey, you know why there's so many uh, cat photos on the internet? I don't. <laughs> it's because dog people leave the fucking house. <laughs> Good one. There you go. Uh, yeah. Money is the best motivator for employees. That's the myth. Is it? The actual. <laughs> <laughs> Results may vary. <laughs> While competitive pay is essential, it's not the uh, sole motivator. Researcher, uh, researcher McKenzie, etc., highlights that non-financial factors like praise from managers, uh, attention from leaders, etc., uh, can uh, development, etc. Uh, oh yeah. How many times guys take, etc., in one sentence, uh, are more effective motivating factors? And there's plenty of like economists that have shown like I think it's like seventy. Once you're above seventy thousand dollars a year, it doesn't affect your satisfaction anymore. I, I had I, I brought that up with a, a pre previous leader of compensation at a prior organization, and they said one of the things that the researchers never put as a part of the variables is compensation being a motivator, not because it motivates people to try harder, but motivator in the sense that it's scorekeeping. That it's the ultimate who, scoreboard. Yeah. It's the ultimate scoreboard, and especially at the highest levels of an organization, people, again, it's not motivating them to work harder. It's they want the status and the prestige of having my number is bigger than your number. And I think a lot of, again, psychologists and social scientists neglect that type of thing. Uh, despite it being like a core, a, a, a core uh, psychological phenomenon. Have you ever seen the, uh, it's, it's a famous video of laboratory monkeys and they give one monkey 
a grape, which grape. I think is high value. And they think of another, uh, what we call it, dog kibble, whatever it was, which is like low value. And one monkey's watching the other monkey. And eventually the one that gets a dog food just throws it at the researcher. Like, get the fuck out, get out of here, this shit. I have seen that. Yeah. I mean, human beings, this is one of the reasons why I think, you know, psychology and the social sciences are so fascinating is we have things where we desperately want to be alike and we have ways we desperately want to be different and differentiated from others. And that's to me, it's just fascinating is that we're, we're such complex creatures. Yeah. It's why it's like, it's endlessly fascinating to research this type of stuff. I love comparative psychology. I, I, don't, I haven't dug that deep into it, but you, you look at like a video of, uh, I'm making stuff up right now, but like say a, um, a bird in distress because their like baby bird fell out of the nest or something like that. It's mm -hmm. like that emotion is the exact same emotion I would see from a mother on the street if their kid fell in a well or, you know, down the sewer drain, you know, whatever. Yeah. It's like the exact same behaviors, you know, obviously you got different wings versus arms and sort of things like at a neurological level, they, they gotta be experiencing the exact same thing. Oh yeah. It's cause again, another one of those branches on the phylogenetic tree. <laughs> yeah. yeah it's a good point. Back to yeah. it. Because we're basically right. the same things. We're just like, you know, we're both animals. All right. Uh, last one. A great company culture means a fun workplace. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Cole's already laughing at this one. A study by Deloitte points out that while fun workplace with perks like games, rooms, and free lunches is nice, a great culture is more about shared values, uh, effective communication, a sense of purpose, employee engagement, and retention are more strongly correlated with uh, these deeper cultural factors than just fun amenities. I feel like there's like a U-shaped relationship with funness in the workplace and, <laughs> you know, like where you should be. If it's too fun, that's a problem. If it's not fun enough, that's also a problem. But there's like a like a medium distance of funness <laughs> that's probably ideal. Like you're just like working and like someone hits you in the head with like a Nerf gun. You're like, hey, yeah. like, maybe, maybe we chill, dude. Yeah, it's like chill out, man. Come on. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I worked at a place that had uh, uh, nap pods. You know, they're mm -hmm. like, hey, you know, we're going to be like a hip, like kind of tech yeah. culture, this sort of thing. And it was great. Like they put them over in, like in front of the windows and looked super nice. And like they're like you know, these cool little modern things. But the company culture is such that you weren't really allowed to use them. Right. Like no one was really there to look at. Yeah. No one would really accept you sleeping in that nap pod. It just would not be acceptable. Well, this is very similar. Like I've had this, you know, for a while there, the theory was like ping pong tables was like the signifier <laughs> that you have a fun place to work. But my rule wasn't whether or not they had a ping pong table. It was whether or not people were actually allowed to play. Mm -hmm. Right. It's like you can have a ping pong table. If you've never seen anybody use it, that's actually a really big cultural signifier of like what it's like to work there. And ping pong tables triggered. I, I think I told you this a long time ago, but I walked into a call center that's the size of like it was shit. It was like eight football fields, so just a massive, massive yeah. room full of just like humanity. And like they didn't have any place to put their like coders, so they put them in this like massive call center with the rest of the call center workers. But they're all tech employees; they're making big salaries, big salaries. and they they hooked them up with bing bag chairs and ping pong tables right next to these. Yeah. lower salaried folks and it's like the optics the power like, just, oh my god it was almost as if one got given a grape and the other one got given dog food kind of in like one group is told like no you can't even yeah don't even go over there 
and then they threw the dog food back at the <laughs> the researcher. But if you do have a great culture, it is wonderful. But yeah. like just putting a pinball machine in the break room is not going to do it. Absolutely. So I, I think that we, I think oh, this, no more myths. Are we done with myths? I, I thought that I, was I, I think that we uh, have done yeoman's work here and dispelled all these myths that keep hounding us. You know society. they're not going to go away, right? Because <laughs> <laughs> you don't think that the work from home culture is going to go, or people have figured out culture, work culture in general. How about this? All those myths will go away the second that no one ever requests a colors-based personality test yeah. at work. Yeah. Somebody's going to request a personality <laughs> that's based in a color for the rest of humankind. Um, <laughs> once again, triggered. I worked at a company briefly, very briefly, that uh, they did transportation research. I won't say anything more than that. But they uh, made you do your MBTI, then walk around with a little like paper hat, like you'd get at yeah. like Cafe Dumont with like your, yeah. And it's like I guess this is like, hey, like look, we're all different, but we work for the same company. Like we got to understand people's differences. It's like, <laughs> guys, come on, guys. And I, I've seen the person at the, oh, your little blue line is higher than your red line. That means you're like me, <laughs> you know, whatever. Well, speaking of artificial differences that don't make any uh -oh. uh, real impact on the world, do you want to talk about soda versus pop? No, no, let's skip that. That's not oh, very good. It's not very good. Oh, okay. I thought that was interesting. Oh, okay. Actually. Well, here, let, let's hit on it. So um, I haven't seen this in a, several days. I apologize, which is why I don't want to talk about. But yeah, in the 19, in so 1947, you, you, you go for it. Yeah, for, for the people who are just uh, listening, the, they have this map of the United States and the regions that say Coke versus soda versus pop in 1947 and also in 2023. And so I'll just kind of describe it. In 1947, the pop region is basically all of the Midwest and the upper North Pacific Northwest. The Coke region extends essentially from North Carolina all the way to New Mexico across the South. And soda is in California and Arizona and basically all the Northwest and just like one little splotch in Missouri for some reason. Um, and then you fast forward to 2023 and both Coke and pop have receded dramatically. <laughs> um, whereas soda is covering most of the center of the map. Pop is still, I would call in like the rural parts of the Midwest and the Pacific Northwest but still like large swaths of, you know, like Illinois and Wisconsin and Ohio are now soda areas. And Coke has receded to just parts of Kentucky, Tennessee, Louisiana, Texas, Mississippi, and Alabama. And so it's just fascinating how trends like that yeah. have occurred over time. I haven't really studied like the genealogy of language that well. But uh, so once again, what we're talking about, like if you order a fizzy, sugary drink, like what do you call it? Yeah, and I grew up in Texas, and I was like, I want a Coke. What kind of Coke? Well, I want Dr. Pepper. That's that's what kind mm -hmm. of Coke I want, really. Well, when I grew up, again, I I sincerely had never heard somebody say soda or pop. Really? So, oh, oh, I, yeah. yeah. I yeah, yeah. thought it was Coke my whole life, and then I went to work for a competitor of Coca Cola <laughs> earlier in my career. <laughs> I forgot about that. that. Yeah, and that is when I started calling it soda. 
just to be diplomatic. <laughs> well, that that company hires so many people. Maybe they've single handedly like changed the world there. Yeah. Now it is. It is. I won't say distressing, but it is a shock when I hear somebody say pop. I'm like, really? This is what no. we're doing? Pop. Pop is insane. Um, yeah. I since I've moved to Seattle, I've never really put it together, but I do say soda more often. Like yeah. I'm go to the store. If I'm talking to someone from Texas, which I know a few people here, I'll say like I'm gonna go get a Coke, and they they know that that doesn't mean I'm gonna go get a Coca Cola. Yeah. Um, if someone were to ever say like that they want a pie, now that would freak me out. Back to the pizza. Oh yeah, is that, there, I guess there are regional differences to pizza. I don't know what they are. Um, I just always call it pizza. You ever to Detroit pizza? Isn't that where they do it like reverse, put like the sauce on the top and the. I've only been to Detroit on once. Bottom. It's not high on my list of cities that not, I like. Not a vacation spot for you. Yeah. Sorry, people from Detroit who listen. Um, <laughs> Chicago, like, hey, I'm about to make some enemies here. But, I mean, it, it's a lot. That's all I'm saying. Like, eat a slice of deep dish pizza. That, that's that's an intense day. And you only need Seattle, I love it. And that's why I asked you earlier about Seattle, if there were, like, any regional things. Because one of the oh, things I found is. I go to somewhere and I try to try the regional dishes, whatever they may be. And I, I find that I really end up liking them just because of, you know, that ineffable quality of like, okay, this is what you're known for, you know? Yeah. You'd have to dig deep uh, into the Seattle culture. Cause there's not like a New York style pizza or a, you know, th this sort of thing, but what they do have around the city. So there's uh, a place called rain city burgers. And there's mm. a hot dog stand in uh, the Seattle Center, kind of where I live, and uh, another place. To, and anyway, it's th th their bit is they put cream cheese on burgers, hot dogs, yeah. these sort of things. And I think if I had to distill it, that might be the Seattle <laughs> culinary experience. Yeah. Well, it's like in like San Diego. I remember. I can't remember what it's called, but they have like these burritos that have like French fries in them, and it's like really. I'm down with that, dude. Yeah, it's like it's Hell fantastic. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> give me that right now. Yeah, I was like, I wish they had that in Texas. Like, that Why should you... be everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> I had a friend talking about he went to uh, Miami and got a it was a hot dog with pineapple and potato chips, and like I was like, I get it, the sweet and the salty yeah. is mixed. Hell yeah, that's. I'd have to try it. It depends on the type of... You said it's on a hot dog? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It depends on the type of hot dog. Like, the actual meat of the hot dog would be... I would be very particular about that. But if you had the right kind of meat, I could see that working. Man, I don't know. Like, horse meat? I don't know. <laughs> like, what were the different no, hot dog like meats? Some, um, more like a... Like, that would never go with, like, a bratwurst or something like that. Like, I, I don't think I could stomach it. They, they don't hold together the way they should in your mouth. It's weird. Yeah. I don't like the mm -hmm. texture. But anyway, I think we're getting a little off here. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, I got some for you. We can call this the confusion matrix. We can call it whatever right. you want. The confusion matrix. Oh, what did you got? You got something? No, I loved it. Let's listen again. I, I, I don't think I know what's coming here either. So let's, you, you, let's you don't know. You don't know. Uh, but you, sir, did Me, sir. work at Waffle House. Briefly. For, for a while. You keep overselling my stint at Waffle House. <laughs> you, you owned a Waffle House. You are the franchisee of Waffle Houses. You, you, you're on the logo. 
It sounds like it's not a bad business. So I'm, I might, I might do that someday. <laughs> I've got uh, 12 facts about Waffle House, and you can guess. How about that? We'll just make it to a game. Okay. Uh, we can go as quickly or slow as we care to, and it doesn't really matter, right? Um, which city in America has the most Waffle Houses? You may know these. Like, they may have told you this in training. I don't know. Uh, I mean, I'm going to guess, like, <laughs> like, Jacksonville, Florida or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> it's a pretty good guess. Uh, Atlanta. They have Atlanta. 132 Waffle Houses. And by the way, this segment goes out to all of our uh, Belgian <laughs> waffle <laughs> lovers out there. Not not Belgian waffle lovers, just people in Belgium. Yeah. <laughs> just just the, the people that love no waffles. Idea. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> when and where was the first Waffle House? Oh, I probably should have known that when I worked there. <laughs> I don't, I'm going to say like 1901 or something like that um, in... Virginia. Yeah. Uh, not too far outside of Atlanta. It's uh, Avondale Estates, Georgia, in 1955. But, like, you, you make a good point. Like, if someone's mm-hmm. like, the first Waffle House opened in 1822, I'd be like, yeah, that makes sense. If yeah. they said it was like 1980, I'd be like, yeah, that makes sense. You could have told me that Paul yeah. Revere ate at Waffle House yeah. before he rode his ride, <laughs> and I would have believed you. He, he was there all night, yeah. Yeah. Uh, why was Waffle House named as it is? I mean, I feel like the name was self-explanatory. <laughs> it's like a place you get waffles. I think that's that's totally fair. We'll give you credit, like a little ding there. Uh, but it was named after the highest profit item, which apparently was a waffle on the original menu. Um, is there eh, we'll just get that one that's bullshit uh how many waffles does waffle house serve per minute i guess it's around the world i remember how mcdonald's used to have like the number of burgers served and it was like nine billion burgers or something i feel like there's like a math equation here we could do like the number of golf balls that fit in an airplane type of thing to try (laughs) to deduce this but uh i don't know i'm just gonna say twenty thousand, just to have fun with it uh, you're, you're even Snoop Dogg thinks you're too high. Okay. Uh, it's 145 waffles per minute. Oh, okay, well, I, I was way off. <laughs> <laughs> I like my line though. There you go. Um, shit, I can't see. Oh, is it true that waffle houses have no locks on the door because they're open 24 hours a day? I think they have locks, they just probably don't use them. Oh, uh, yeah, that's correct. They do, in fact, have locks. Uh, do you know what the Waffle House index is? And it's used by FEMA. This is actually really fascinating. Waffle House index used by FEMA. And you're talking about the disaster relief part of the Yeah, government. yeah, yeah. Um, it's a good people analytics sort of deal. I have no idea. So FEMA uses the Waffle House index to measure the severity of natural disasters. It assesses the impact based on whether local Waffle Houses are open or closed in an area. So if they're open, it's not that bad. Better indicators than that. (laughs) I love the proxy measures, though. Um, Yeah, yeah, they used to be able to sell Chick-fil-A. Can you make reservations on Valentine's Day? Yes, in fact, you can. That must be a new addition. You, you could not make reservations <laughs> in the past. All, all the good old boys taking their ladies out for... Uh... <laughs> what is Waffle House Records? Oh, those are the... Uh, they, they, those don't exist very much anymore, but they had the jukeboxes and the, all the Waffle Houses. Yeah, that was... Very good, man. Um, do they test new items? Yes, they do. 
Why was Waffle House also known as Waffle and Steaks in Indiana? I assume because they sold steak as well. <laughs> uh, another chain had the naming rights to Waffle House. So they oh, changed the name. And uh, so for everyone that isn't around a Waffle House or doesn't enjoy Waffle House as much as we do, there you go. That's we already I mean. lost them. Yeah, yeah that, that's, that's fair. We're down to zero listeners, but I'm it's doing, okay. We're I'm doing this for talking. you. I'm doing this for you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, how long are people willing to stay? But between that and myth busting, like, I think they're like, yeah, we're going to check out for the day. It is totally fine. Well, do you want to do some some nerdery? I think we have a smattering of stuff to talk about. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. The nerdery. Uh, where do you want to start? I want to start with one, just because we hit on it a bunch there for a while, and then haven't talked about it recently about uh, paper mills. And yeah, um, so this is not like paper mills that make paper like a factory. These are groups of people usually in you know you know developing countries who are like getting together like large groups of people and just submitting just tons and tons of scientific papers and uh and to journals and then all citing each other so they all like have this like mutual citation agreement um and what they found is like this is a really big problem with doing high quality science because we're already saying like the paper mills are submitting a lot of junk science but they've even upped the ante, and this is from the journal Science, so this is a very credible place, saying that some paper mills are starting to bribe journal editors to get their papers passed. <laughs> of course, of course. <clears throat> and I was like, again, we've talked about uh, the issues of incentives and the role that they play in why people you know, do ethical versus unethical behavior, and if the incentives are so high, for people to get, you know, enough citations in top journals to get tenure or whatever it may be at your, or to get research funding at your university, you're going to see issues where people will say, well, it's, you know, it caught like my raise at becoming a tenured professor is going to be this much higher than what I make now. Yeah. Uh, I'm willing to contribute 10% of my salary to bribe some journal editors. If we all pool our money together, we can all, you know, get tenure together. And so this is a real phenomena and, why you know trust in scientific papers is is decreasing because like this is this is something that's happening and so i just wanted to bring this up as a psa i don't know you have any thoughts on this um so i mean like, like you hit on like incentives lead to motivation which leads to these sort of things and like uh scientific integrity be damned because they don't pay the bills you know uh and i the bri bribing a editor to get your paper through is horrific but also colluding with fellow uh, authors to essentially develop a citation network where everyone mutually benefits is uh, yeah. is, is collusion. Is is plain and simple. Um, you, you, we don't have it as much in say psychological research, but you'll see it in, like medical practices, like these papers with thirty authors on it, and I think it's just like, hey, add me to your paper. I'll add you to my paper and like, we'll both get a couple citations and you know, that'll look good yeah. in our CVs, et cetera. Um, I don't know how you combat it at this point. So once again, like you, you would need to like fundamentally change the incentives of the journals, uh, the research institutions and the actual authors. I, I think 
I, I mean, if you would have asked me three or four years ago, I would have given you a totally different answer on this. But with all the evidence I've seen lately, I mean, and this is going to come up in one of the later articles I have about, you know, even the president of Harvard just resigned. And yeah, like we've yeah. seen the Stanford president having to resign recently. And like there's some pretty systemic issues that are going on. I mean, we may be at a point where we got to revisit all the science that's been done in like the last 30 years to make sure it's still, you know, relevant. Just a, a lot of thoughts there. A little pause there. I, yeah, it's, it's really worrying, especially like we, we had Kurday on what, like a year ago. And he said yeah. something effect of like what 30%, he, he was on the impression that like 30% of all, io articles were if not fabricated but based on fabricated data in some way or form it all comes down to trust like you have to be able like if you if you think of like science as like the foundation of decision making yeah right? yeah good and point you start to realize that the foundation is like very porous and you know they mixed in you know play-doh with concrete <laughs> <laughs> We're going to have some problems. <laughs> like, can well, we make real decisions based on this stuff? I, I could handle like uh, inaccurate information out there uh, as long as the all the information was published and it was fast. Like, so at least uh, you would have a course correction or at least get a nice, uh, say, uh, a, a funnel plot of, say, effect sizes around a phenomenon. Then you can at least say, like, uh, these are outliers. They're not accurate. But I mean, if, if the incentives are to find positive results and the incentives are to get published, and we, we know this from some of our previous articles we've covered, it's like you got to have novel findings. They got to be impactful. They got to like move the needle because it's not necessarily about the finding. It's about selling the journal to people that yeah. would read it. Well, and that, I mean, I don't remember the exact specifics of it, but that was like the whole Stanford president issue is like he had this lab where he pitted graduate student groups against each other that were all in his lab and said like, the more novel things that you find, <laughs> the more likely I am to like, you know, incentivize you in some way. And then all of a sudden, you know, all his papers got retracted because they, you know, like, you know, I, again, I'm, I'm probably using hyperbole here, but um but like they were fabricating the results. But I do like the process of we don't do enough, say, exploratory research in IO. Like there, there is value to just, I don't know, putting things into a ML model and just seeing what shakes out the back end. And then you can develop theory around it, do more rigorous testing later on. But, See, I, but there was even a point in time not that long ago where saying that would have been anathema to our community. Yeah, absolutely. Right. I mean, it, it, I understand it doesn't jive with the uh, scientific method as far as like we've researched this topic, we've we we've, we developed a strict hypothesis, etc. But what's well, the difference between inductive and deductive types of reasoning? And we have overcorrected, in my opinion, towards completely deductive ways of doing things, and which requires a scientific method. But it's like let's just find some stuff and let's generate some hypotheses from what we find using inductive methods sometimes too. Uh, here, I think this melds well with an, another article we have, uh, an urgent call for Iowa psychologists to produce uh, timelier technology research. So it's actually quite uh, fascinating. Uh, it's not P-Psych. What is this? IO Perspectives. Yeah. Uh, so they took data from 23 previous PSYOPs and found that 
research regarding emerging technology doesn't actually occur for six years after the introduction of the technology. Yep. So like, like think, uh, the advent of say like the internet and then like six years later you get internet based testing something like that and like that's a long delay and i mean just think about where we were hell two years ago think about where we were mm -hmm. like 10 years ago it's like yep we're, we're moving faster and faster and faster and the, these long delays once again with the research publication cycle is just well it's, it's not just the publication cycle it's like interest of researchers the access of the data of those researchers mm -hmm, to have mm -hmm. and then the the reward system of like sometimes journals won't even you know do like a call for papers on a particular topic till years later um and, <laughs> yeah that's a good point and so there's no motivation to go do this type of research but you know i i feel like you could have written this article at any time in the last 30 years and it would have been <laughs> just as relevant i got this new thing called the telephone <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> like, what's his name uh oh my god why am i blanking i don't know not not hawthorne uh the guy that walks around psyop the mystery guy uh mystery guy at psyop this is yeah. interesting oh my god i can't believe it. monsterberg monsterberg oh yeah yeah, yeah. i kind of talking about yeah I, like we got these uh i got these people plugging in the phone lines into the system how to make it more productive i think charles handler was that he was he was Musterberg, a man. I think I, so. Or maybe he knows. I feel like I saw him whoa. post something about that. This is like salacious stuff you're revealing here, man. Maybe, I mean, I might be completely <laughs> in left field. So, Charles, I apologize if that's not you. I love outing him. It's like deep throat or something. Oh, I thought he outed himself. I thought that was. Oh, really? One. Yeah, I mean, maybe I'm. I'm again. I might be making this up, but I, I could see. It I could see it, man. Charles Handler. He he does seem like the type. He's a little. He's a little out there. Kind of uh, has that yeah. personality. Good enough personality to pull it off. Yeah. Sorry, Charles. <laughs> <laughs> what we're on to you, Charles? I think that's the. I think that's the main takeaway here. Yeah. Would you mind if I do some Guinness? Since you, I you I do some Guinness, absolutely. Wrote, wrote my love letter to him earlier. Um. Or Aduinus, as some people call it. You're going to have to tell me who that was later. Yeah, well. <laughs> um, so the article uh, from Journal of Business Venturing Insights uh, is called Under the Weight of Heavy Tales, Power Law Perspective on the Emergence of Outliers in Entrepreneurship. And so what they essentially go through is, you could even call it like it's a well-trodden area now of <clears throat> you know just overlaying the power law onto different areas and finding once again, things are not normally distributed. They actually fit a power law better. Yeah. Um, that there's actually just a few outlier startups that account for a disproportionate amount of the output and value in this space, which is the whole premise <clears throat> behind the venture capital model of funding. And so they just have some, a bunch of data in here that shows that, um, you know, in entrepreneurship, it also follows the power law. And so I thought this is, um, Another fascinating example of the power law versus the Gaussian, you know, bell curve being a big factor in um, in the world that we live in. Um, I don't know. Did you get a chance to look at that one? I did not look at that. Um, and a follow up question: Like, so, so what is what is the power law? So, like, they're entrepreneurs and like their ability to be successful. Is that what it is? 
Yeah, it's uh, the, the power law is is like the 80-20 distribution, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So a normal distribution follows a bell curve. The power power law says, you know, something like uh, 20% of companies account for 80% of the value, right? Or Yeah, um, yeah. Sometimes it's like as low as like 1% of the companies account for 50% of the value. So it becomes steeper and steeper and steeper as you go up. And... <clears throat> You know, what they found is that uh, they studied, I think, 22,000 ventures across 32 samples and that, you know, these uh, entrepreneurs, like these um, enterprises, um, you know, their annual revenue distribution followed the power law um, with an exponential cutoff. And um, and the, the same thing, funny enough, with the employee distribution, meaning the number of employees that the entrepreneur that these businesses had. So it's not just how much money they make, it's how many people they employ as well. And so it's just a fascinating finding. Yeah. In, in network analysis parlance, this would be called like, say the Matthew effect. So you got like preferential attachment mm-hmm. towards certain companies. So for whatever reason they get, you know, once again, touched by God and in some sort of way, either through a better product or better marketing or just the luck at hand or uh, placement, et cetera. And um, it, it makes sense. Like so, some companies survive, even the ones that don't actually have the best product, they tend to rise to the top. And it did just yeah. like a Guinness's other articles on star performers, some people produce disproportionate value over others. Yep. And those, well, those like- are the, um, um, you know, gold, golden the, eggs or whatever. And the Matthew effect is, uh, to he who is given something, everything will be given. And to he who like has nothing, everything will be taken or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So like the rich get richer is a yeah. diff- different way to say that. So. Fascinating. I've got another one real quick. Um, wow, and this we're, is sport- we're doing like a nerdy hit around. I love this. Let's do it, man. It's Colin Scott episode. We can do whatever we want. <laughs> I'm going to take my shirt off. If you want. <laughs> so this one was a, a recent one. Um, and it was kind of related uh, to the the thing I was mentioned about the president of Harvard just resigned for yeah. plagiarism claims. But uh, Josh Burson published something about our diversity and inclusion programs going away um, in light of the affirmative action ruling from the Supreme Court and what's going on at Harvard and everything. And I think the thing here is, I'm not sure all the letters in in the DEIB, and I've even seen people add an A recently about accessibility, are all going in the same direction. Because he says, our diversity and inclusion programs going away? If you just use the D and the I, I think those are absolutely staying around. Right? What's, what's B? What would B be? Belonging. Belonging. Oh, oh, okay. Right. I'm obviously it, not hip on my DEI terms. Yeah, and so they're, they're always adding letters, you know. Um, but I think the reality is, is like any company that's focusing on outreach and, you know, being more inclusive and, you know, trying to tap different talent pools from different backgrounds, they're absolutely going to be successful in the marketplace. And I think we've talked about this a whole bunch. It's when people start putting the thumbs on the scales. And I think this is what the Mm. affirmative action ruling talked about and what's going on at Harvard is being talked about. It's like, it's when you're really trying to like artificially create something. Um, that's when things go awry. And so I think you can do diversity and inclusion programs even more effectively in the coming years. I don't see them going away. It's just when you get into the thumbs on the scales aspect that I think we're, that's where we're going to go wrong. 
I don't know. Did you? I, did, I guess you probably didn't have a chance to read this one, but do you have any thoughts? Uh, yeah. So, like, uh, do, do, like we, we saw it earlier in the sort of myth busting that, like, being included in the work, uh, being part of the team, being accepted, all fantastic for engagement, which later leads to productivity for the organization. Fantastic. What, what's difficult is to show the value. I think that's where a lot of DEI programs have a difficult time. It, a, a business is there to make money you know, ostensibly for the shareholders, yeah. really. And everything needs to have a business value. And DEI pro programs have not, and they have a hard time showing their value from a business sense. Uh, I think even sometimes they, they're pretty good at showing value. It's like sometimes the programs are like anti-value. <laughs> like they're like, we're going to consciously try not to show value. It's like, well, that's going to rub you up against, you know, the model of trying to make money. Yeah. You, it's just going to be tough. You, you need a bottom line. And I, I think that we as IOs could do more research here or like develop a better model to show the value. Cause we, we know that it exists. We know it's a good idea. We know that people have good outcomes if they do feel included, et cetera, et cetera, like I just said, but trying to show that from a business perspective has for whatever reason been a struggle other than like, it's the right thing to do, which I think is where a lot of companies are right now. Yeah. I, don't know, I I mean, I feel like we've even talked about it on here a bunch, like the benefits of to businesses in a local context, but also at an organizational level of, you know, diversity of their workforce, diversity of ideas, diversity yeah. of thought. And like, I mean, there's tons of science that shows support of that. And even like uh, work that I've, I haven't read about recently, but like on the terms like anti-fragility, like you want to be able to like, if everybody's the same and there's one small change to a business, the business is screwed because they don't have any kind of ability to be, you know, to be resilient to any kind of changes because they don't have the ideas if you have some kind of yeah. monoculture, right? But if you have that homogeneity, you can encounter a bunch of different things as a business and the world is changing really rapidly. So homogeneity is probably more important than ever. It's, it, it's again, I think- Heter the issue Heterogeneity? Or, yeah, what did I say? Homogeneity? Uh, you, you, I said uh, the opposite, my bad. Uh, no, no worries, no, no worries. Yeah, sorry, you, you know what I meant. Um, but yeah, heterogeneity is, is really important. It's just the, the artificial, like creating heterogeneity, like on the backs of something else, like that's where I think goes, things go wrong. It, it's, a, it's a sticky question, like, uh, because we know that homogenous teams tend to produce results more quickly. Heterogeneous mm -hmm. teams tend to bring in diverse perspectives and get a writer answer. Yeah. You know, this sort of thing. So it's, it's a tension. It's a tension in organizations, but. Well, it's uh, like the whole quantity versus quality debate all yeah. over, you know. Um, well, did oh, you want to do one last one on software engineers? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah sure. Uh, so this is uh, gender dif differences in personality of software developers. And it's a pretty uh, interesting study. It uses the Hexaco model and uh, network analysis of the items of the Hexaco. Um, I, I, I refer to it, I've heard it referred to as causal attitude networks, i.e. Nathan Carter or uh, uh, psychometric network analysis. We, we, we interviewed somebody from uh, Tal Reyes. Who was that? She that was, was Nicole Ledich. Nicole Ledich. Uh, shout out out there if you're listening. Still listening after all this time. But what they found is uh, women software developers, they interviewed, uh, they tested like 700 or something like that. I can't remember the actual stats. But women have higher openness, uh, honesty and humility, and emotionality. Men tend to be higher on uh, psychopathic traits. 
So you have like the dark triad in there. Um, I can see it. <laughs> I can see it. Uh, but I mean, it's a great use of the Hexaco, which we usually talk about the big five. It's a little bit different. They have a great table in here. If you want to know the differences between the Hexaco and the high. And but isn't, I thought the Hexaco model was essentially the big five, except for the added honesty. humility. Yeah, there you go. There it is right there. Yeah. Uh, and they also have a great table on the uh, dark triad too. Uh, Let me see if I can find it. Yeah. Narcissism, psychopathy and uh, Machiavellianism. Yeah. I feel like they added one more to that, but I can't remember what it is. So it's, it's, uh, oh, I, I don't know. I've not heard that. That'd be an interesting thing to talk about. Uh, it, it's a, it's a liberal interpretation, but yeah, to, to be a software developer, you kind of got to be a psychopath. Like you just talk about long hours of coding with very little contact with outside humans and like it, you know? Yeah. I always, you know, I, I go through these things where sometimes you hear a word so many times I forget what it means. Yeah. And so people use colloquially the term like, oh, he's a psychopath. So many, like <laughs> so many times I'm just like, what does it even mean? And it's actually good to refresh. So in yeah. here it says it's characterized by antisocial behavior, such as lack of empathy or remorse. And I was like, oh yeah, that's a psychopath. Okay, good. It's also uh, low planning, something like that. You're just like, yeah, not, not, not goal directed. Sure. They, they have a, like what di what differentiates high from low scores, but it's pretty long. I'm not going to read the whole thing. Yeah. Machiavellianism is uh, essentially, sadist <laughs> so i thought maybe that that is what that is is sadism that's the one they added in oh okay someone it, bifurcated it or yeah they added it was um i think it's or maybe it's like uh yeah so it was machiavellianism psychopathology narcissism and sadism um because like actually i think machiavellianism is all about um the the whole, the famous Machiavelli, uh, like the ends have to justify the means. Yeah. Right? And so, you know, you, you're willing to break any rule as long as it gets you to your objective, but it's not necessarily like you hate people like sadists. They, 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 I think they take pleasure <laughs> in other people's pain. <laughs> uh, it's, it's fun to like try to apply these to people, but I mean, like you're talking like the super high end of the scales to actually find yeah. if, you, if you found one of these people you'd want to avoid them like plague well think of it like a math problem it's like each of these are its own continuum on a personality yeah, scale absolutely right? we all have a little yeah. bit in us yep and and all the continuums are normally distributed they're not uh, power law shaped right yeah. um and so to be on like uh really like let's say two standard deviations above the mean um, you know, on four different scales, that becomes a really <laughs> small number of people really quickly, just mathematically speaking. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's, uh, but I guess those people when they do exist can create a lot of havoc. <laughs> uh, but yeah, uh, Hey, lady software developers, uh, you're higher in openness and honesty. Well, and just, we're sorry if you have to deal with <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you, we haven't really talked about this, but I, I hear this in uh, programs like STEM programs where women feel, uh, what do they call it, like organizational chilling, where like they don't feel welcome in really? these sort of groups uh, because like you get people that just don't know how to like socially interact or like they are higher on like psychopathy 
this well, this goes thing. back to the point I was making on the DNI thing. It's like you, inclusion and belonging programs are not going anywhere because these kind of things are going to persist in the yeah. workplace. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like we've got it. I mean, just for pure business, like capitalist purposes, you know, if you're taking talent off the you know the chessboard, you know, just by because people are being you know douches. Yeah, like. Yeah. Well, you're going to, from a business needs standpoint, you're going to create programs to try to decrease the amount of douches. I, I like that full circle nature. Like I was arguing, you need to show business value. That is the business value. Exactly. Like, to retain your workforce. You know how expensive software engineers are? I mean, geez. Oh my God. There, there's a great account of uh, a, a TikTok of this guy who pretends to be like an Amazon SDE and he bounces back and forth between Microsoft, which is across the <laughs> lake here. And he's like... I'm only making like 575,000 comp when they expect me to work a full, like 12 hours a week. Like this is not sustainable. You know, this sort of stuff. Uh, this is where I lose my faith in humanity. <laughs> All right, ma'am. I think, I think we're good. This is, this has been a wild ride. Yeah, this has, and <laughs> we lost everybody, you know, 45 minutes ago. If, so. if you made it this far, go we appreciate yeah. you and salute you. But, uh, well, you've been listening to, you know, Directionally Correct, a People Analytics podcast with Colin Scott. Thanks for listening. Hey, guys. Directionally Correct is dedicated to you, our listeners, to help educate and entertain you on how to effectively do people analytics. By supporting this podcast, you're helping us continue to provide valuable insights and knowledge to our listeners. Please consider becoming a patron of the podcast. You can find the link to sign up in the show notes or at patron.podbean.com slash directionally correct. Thanks for your support.